time we're in because we're very short-sighted and we go, this is the worst we've ever seen it. I'll agree. I'll put up, I can moan, groan, and gripe as much as, as well as the best of them. I don't like the things I see going on around me, uh, but I also know a little bit of history and I know what has happened in the Bible and I know what has happened since biblical times. And uh, there have been some very tough times in this world. Here's what I want to tell you. Christ and Christ's work has never stopped because of hard times. In fact is, I believe that Jesus Christ came into the world as the light of the world, and uh, we are obviously not Jesus Christ. We are not the ones that are the light of the world, but here's who we are. We are to the sun, like as, uh, as the moon is to the sun, that is us. We reflect what Jesus Christ has done and who he is. And so the darker the world, the brighter we can shine. I heard somebody on the radio, it has nothing to do with Christmas. They said a lot of people, when the stock market is up, they get all excited about investing money. And he said, that is absolutely the worst time to invest your money because it's probably not going to go much higher. It's going to go lower. And so it's a really bad time to invest. But when you invest your money... You invest it when it's dropped 50% or 30%, then you invest because it's probably going to go up. Well, guess what? When you look at life and the investment in the gospel and the ministry that we have of Jesus Christ, now is the time to invest and get a whole lot more worse. And people are gloomy. They're depressed. They don't know what's going on. And they're looking for hope. Guess what? If you are a Christian and you are reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ and his light, today is the time where your light will shine brighter than it probably ever will in your lifetime. I can tell you, I've been here 33 years and uh, it's not any gloomier than it is now. So now's not the time to go, I'm quitting, I'm giving up, it's too hard, or I don't like what's going on, so I'm not going to do anything. No, I challenge you this morning, and I'm going to do that from the Word of God, that now is the time to shine brightly. Now is the time to be salt and light. When it's over and everything is all great and hunky-dory and everything's going well, like, okay, yeah, we're, we're okay too. So why should we listen to somebody who is telling us there's a Savior, the light of the world, one who will save you? Now is the time to get in ministry. So that's my little rant for the day. But let's go look at the scripture. I've entitled this series, A COVID Christmas. There's four parts to it. We've already looked at prophecies past, and every time a prophecy was given, it was in the hard, gloomy times, there was war going on, really bad stuff was happening. God gave a promise in the middle of it, a prophecy in the middle of it that said, there's a Savior coming, better times are coming. Last week, we looked at the actual birth of Christ, and uh, leading right up to it, and we saw that all kinds of horrible things were happening. Horrible government overreach. A totalitarian Roman government that said, well, you'll do this and you've got to do it. And it was bad. Today is the one that gave me the title for the whole thing. Because after Christ was born, that's when it really got bad. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in the next uh, half an hour or so. We're going to look at this whole thing. 
Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the one that we worship, the one who is our Savior, is the one that came into a world that everything was going against Him and going the wrong way. And Jesus, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, Mary, Joseph, and every, else, every other person involved did not quit, but they continued on. God's plan continued. God did not stop. Mike said at the first uh, thing that he had up there about, you know, COVID and people need blankets and all those things. Now's the time to shine, folks. And we want to be that. I hope I can challenge. I hope I can encourage. I don't know what. I'll beg if I have to. Let's not allow the circumstances to control us, but let's shine brightly in the circumstance. And you will shine. There's no doubt about it because around me I see all the gloom, despair, and misery. And it's not only the world, but it's Christians. So anyway, let's look at the circumstances following his birth. First of all, the, the circumstances around his birth were everything but normal. The only thing that was normal in the verse we see before us, and that's Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The cloths part, if you, you read a King James version, it says swaddling clothes. It was bands. It was what mothers do. I've never been able to do this, but I've seen my wife and I've seen many other mothers do it. They have a newborn baby. They take the baby, they take the baby blanket, and they wrap this kid up like they're trying to suffocate and squish the kid to death. Well, I understand that makes the child feel secure and safe and all those kind of calms them down and quiets them down. Well, that's exactly what Mary did. But where she put the child was the difference. Now, we have the nursery all sterilized, and it's got all the nice pictures on it, and, you know, it's freshly painted. You know, you, you know what mothers do, especially first-time moms. They have to have everything just perfect, you know, and want new furniture and all that kind of stuff. You know what? In this case, there was none of that. In fact is, it stank. It was dirty, it was noisy, and it was in a cattle trough. In fact is, uh, we think of a manger like something like my wife has up here, uh, but that's probably not what it was. Uh, even if it was, we don't have any evidence of that because it would have all deteriorated by now. But the troughs in those days were made out of stone and they were carved out. And they're still around today, you know, 2,000 years later. And so I grew up on a farm. My dad used to say, you got at the, at the table, myself and my two brothers would say, you guys act like a, or eat like a bunch of hogs. I'm not going to deny that we did. Uh, but uh, that meant we were sloppy, we were noisy, and all kinds of stuff. Well, I grew up on a dairy farm, and I know that cows eat a little different than pigs. We had pigs, too. But, man, the, the, the trough is full of slobber and you know, it's just not where you want to put your child. Well, that's exactly where Jesus landed up. Why? Because there was no room in the inn. Now, I've heard this phrase for years. It said, no room in the inn for Jesus, no room in, in life for Jesus now. <sighs> Acting like the people of that day were against Jesus. They didn't even know who he was. But here's what did happen. You know the story. Mary and Joseph had to travel 90 to 100 miles to just sign up a census so they could get taxed. Really overreaching government. 
And they didn't care about a pregnant lady. They go there. Well, I'm going to use my sanctified imagination right now. Is if everybody from that was of the house of David was going there, and you're traveling with a very pregnant lady, are you going to be first in line or are you going to be lagging behind? you're probably going to be somewhat slower than everybody else. So when Mary and Joseph, this is my imagination, Mary and Joseph get there, everything's filled up. It wasn't because they were against Jesus or against Mary and Joseph or any of those things. It just was the way it was, but it wasn't an easy time. And so what's left? Hey, right where the cattle and the, the livestock were in a trough. An inn, and people uh, have all kinds of problems with the whole idea of an inn. They say, it wasn't an inn. No, it probably wasn't an inn like you think of. But the word inn simply means a place where you unloosen. You unpack your animals, you take your shoes off, you kind of, you know, relax and probably get a meal and, and a bed. Uh, it's used, if you want to know where else it's used in the New Testament, it is used two other places, and both of them refer to the guest room, or what we call the upper room. Jesus said, find a room where we can celebrate the Passover. And they come back, and they said, we found a large furnished upper room. But the room, and you can see I have it in yellow, it's the exact same word as used here. Now, we don't know exactly what it was in the Christmas story, but we know that it was simply a place that was used to accommodate the needs of someone else. We might call it a banquet room today, at least the upper room. This guest room or this inn could have been a, a B&B, like we would know today in somebody's house. Uh, it could have been uh, what we would call an inn. It could have been that. Uh, it, it could have been a guest house. We don't know exactly what it was. We just know it was filled to capacity. And there was no place for them to go. And so they used whatever was available, happened to be in a stable. By the way, the word manger can also refer to the stall that an animal was kept in also. But again, was it ideal circumstances? The answer is no, but it didn't stop God from doing what he said he would do. Shouldn't stop us either. We also know that the circumstances were different. You would think, hey, this is the one who's going to be the savior of the world. You would think that the high-class people would be, religious leaders would be there. Not a chance. In fact is, it was shepherds. They were on the lowest economic rung, and these shepherds that are in this story are the ones that got stuck on night shift. <laughs> Again, sanctified imagination, but I can't imagine that anybody wanted to work night shift. Now, they would not have the sheep out just in the middle of the pasture or yard or whatever. They would be in a corral made out of stone, and there would be about a six-foot opening. They would sit or sleep in that opening. Now, whether these guys were sleeping or trying to stay awake, I don't know. But all I know is they weren't expecting what happened next. All of a sudden, it says, the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and an angel was talking to him. We'll talk about what the angel said in a moment. But it says they were terribly frightened. Now, the only reason I can remember Greek words um, 
is that many Greek words have come into English. The word terribly is a word we use all the time. We tend to exaggerate or go into extremes. We say something is mini or we say it's mega, like mega machines or mega meal or whatever. You know, we do that. This is the word mega. They were mega afraid. (laughs) They were as big afraid as you can get. They were shaking in their sandals. You would be too, whether you were asleep and woken or you were just trying to stay awake to protect the sheep. doesn't matter if the whole sky is lit up by the glory of the Lord. You're going to go, what in the world? Now, most of us don't remember flashbulbs, but I imagine in my head, this is like a giant flashbulb that doesn't go away. It just lights the place up and they're afraid. Now, what happens next is... Well, that wasn't normal. But what happens next is the angel was talking to them. And he says, for today, uh, for unto you is born today in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He said three things in that one small segment there, that one small phrase. He says, a Savior. A Savior is describing his purpose. He came to be the protector and the deliverer of people from their sins. That was his purpose. He didn't come to be just a good example, even though he was a perfect example. He came to deliver us from our sins. He came as the Savior. The second thing is, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He came to represent God. That's his mission. He is the one that came on God's behalf. And the last one, he is the Lord. That's his nature. He is the God-man. God who took on the nature of a man in one person and represented God and represented us at the same time. No one else could do that. Nobody else had that an angel telling him that. And these are the lowest of the low. And you go, wow, why didn't the religious leaders get this? Because they had already decided they're going to do things their own way. But in this story, we find that uh, they were not upper class. They weren't middle class. But Mary and Joseph were low class. Now, the other Saturday night, and there's some guy uh, on the local talk station um, that comes on. I hear him every now and then on Saturday night driving home from the office. He's on late at night sometime. And... He had a guest on. This guy is all into UFOs and alternative universes and stuff. He's just really out there. But he had a guy on that said, "Uh, I've done a study on the birth of Jesus, and every sentence I tell you, you're going to go, no way. Well, I thought, I'm going to have to listen to this, because I wanted to find out what this guy was saying. Well, every sentence he said, I'm going, no way, because I know what the Bible says. He said that, and I can't remember all of them, but he said, Mary's mother was born in England and came to Jerusalem, that Joseph was rich, and Joseph had other children before he was married to Mary. Uh, he said Joseph was, uh, you know, part of the ruling class because he was related to some of these rulers. I didn't get it all. And I thought this guy's going to be a total agnostic or an atheist or whatever. And so the host asked him, he says, Okay, i got to ask you one other question. He said, you know, a lot of people believe that, that Jesus Christ was supernatural, that he was God. And he said, 
I wish I could believe that. I envy people that, could be, that believe that. I've seen a UFO, so I believe in UFOs, but I haven't seen Jesus, so I'm just not sure. And the guy, to my surprise, said, no, I believe he was supernatural. I believe he was God. I couldn't believe it. It kind of didn't match. But he was saying everything opposite of the Bible, and at the same time saying, no, I believe he is very unique. At least he believed that he was God. Now, I don't believe he was a Christian. But I said all of that to say, Mary and Joseph were not rich people. They weren't even middle class. How do I know that? Because I know what the Old Testament scripture says. At 33 days, Mary was again required to travel. Now remember, she's traveling while she's pregnant. Now she's just given birth a month before that. And now she has to travel back to Jerusalem for the purification ceremonies. 33 days later, it was required. Mary and Joseph were obedient to angels, to dreams, and to the Old Testament law, because they lived under the law. And so they go to Jerusalem. It was about five or six miles to Jerusalem and five or six miles back to Bethlehem again. Well, when they get there, uh, they go into the temple, and they're going to give the appropriate sacrifices. But in Leviticus chapter 21, it says this. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for the burnt offering and the other for the sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Now, if you're normal, average kind of person, you would have a lamb and you would take the lamb and give it. This is not about tightwads who said, I'm not going to give a lamb. It says, if you cannot afford. So if you could afford it, you were required to sacrifice a lamb. They couldn't afford a lamb. So what did they bring? Two turtle doves or two pigeons? Again, farm story. My brothers and I, when we were teenagers, we were always trying to figure out some hustle to make a buck or two because we had no money. So what we would do, we tried to catch pigeons. Now, if you caught a pigeon, you could... Give them to one of your buddies who was going down there because our buddies did the same kind of things. All farmers have pigeons. And uh, so they would put them in a, a crate and they would take them to Roots Market or Green Dragon. And we'd get 50 cents a piece. Unless you got a brown one. We called them brownies. I, they were pretty rare to get one. They were worth over a dollar. I don't know why. I guess just because they were hard to come by. But we would do stuff at nighttime in the dark because you can't catch pigeons in the daytime because they're too skitzy and they fly away and they don't come back for another hour and then you're just standing there waiting. So we'd wait till they roost and we'd climb up the side of the barn. We'd do all kinds of stuff in the dark. My mom would have known what she was doing. She would have had a hissy fit and probably forbid us for doing that, but we did it. We'd catch a few. We never really made any money. But here's the point. If you were so poor that you had to go out on the eaves of the house or a tree and catch a turtle dove or two and take them for your offering. You weren't a normal, regular person. You were poor. We would call it probably today dirt poor. That's who they were. I, we, you can't come up with anything else. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been obedient um, Jewish people to the law. And so we find out that Jesus wasn't born in luxury or anything like that. But we also find that he had a second set of visitors. King James Version says they were wise men. People say there were three of them. Well, 
they were wise in the sense that they were astrologers, they were uh, advisors to the kings, and, and they might have been into some of the occult, but at the same time, they also knew what the Old Testament said. Remember, the Jewish people had been taken captive into Babylon, and they took with them their scriptures. And these wise men who wanted to know, the Magi wanted to know what's going on, so they looked at everything, and they read everything and got their hands on. And they knew there was a star going to arise in Israel. And when they saw that star, they said, yep, that's the one we're looking for. And uh, they came looking for the one who they believed was the king. They didn't come and say to Herod when they got to Jerusalem, Herod, is there a king of the Jews born here? That is not what the Bible says. They said, we have come to worship the king of the Jews. Where is he? They didn't say, is he here? They said, no, we've come. We know he's here. Where do we go? Well, Herod didn't know. This Herod just is despicable kind of guy, but he didn't know. And so uh, the religious leaders come in and they quote from the Old Testament and said, well, it's going to be in Bethlehem. And so uh, the star, and it wasn't a normal star, the best illustration I can have for this star is this. We're just looking at the Old Testament in the book of Exodus where the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud went before the Jewish people. And when it moved, they moved. This star seemed to be very much like that. I'm not saying it's the same. I'm just saying that's what it's kind of like. Because it brought them to Jerusalem, to Herod. And then they followed the star. And the star stops right over top of the house, not a stable, house, where Jesus was at that point. So it was a little while past that. I believe it was probably past the 33 days. Uh, that's my guess. I can't prove that. But they come and the star stops right there. So this is a unique star. It's not the normal word for star that's used in the Bible, but it's something like the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. It leads them right to the right place. Now, we usually emphasize that they had gifts of gold, silver, uh, I'm sorry, Gold, myrrh, and frankincense. Sorry, I got the wrong one. Uh, but that's not the point. They said, we have come to worship the one who's the king of the Jews. That's the important part. These were not necessarily believers. But they also believed what the Bible said. And they believed the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, did they bring gifts? And a lot of people, they get the whole idea of three wise men from, well, they brought three gifts. First of all, it would have been more than that. They would have had a whole entourage with them. But it could have been two. It could have been dozens. We simply do not know. They always show them riding camels. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. They always show Mary riding a donkey. There's nothing in the Bible about that either. But I drive a Chevy Sonic. It's like a half a car. If you want to see it out there, it looks like somebody chopped the back of a car off. And I drive it. If you drive a Cadillac or a bigger car, it would be the same. A donkey would be poor man's transportation. A camel, somebody got a little more means. These guys would have had means. But here's the deal about the gifts. There is going to be a disaster coming. Baby boys are going to be declared to be killed. And the angel comes and says, Joseph, get out of here and go to Egypt. Now, Joseph is a carpenter, a stonemason, a furniture maker. The word covers all of those. 
That's, that's who he was. We don't know exactly what he did. But guess what? If you're going to leave your hometown and you're going to travel to another country, that costs money to travel, and you're going to get there, and you don't have your regular means of support. Now, he could have got a job there, too. But to get them through, this would have been what made it possible for them to do, and God just provides. Remember, this is in the midst of hard times. God is not thwarted. His program does not come to an end. God continues on, and I I just cannot more than challenge you enough I can't challenge you enough to remember, dark times do not mean we're controlled by that. We live above the circumstances. In spite of the circumstances, we continue to do what God has asked us to do. Now, obviously, the Magi were warned by God, do not go back to Herod. As I said, this guy was pretty despicable. Uh, He was a guy that's not going to surprise you that he was willing to kill all baby boys two years and under in Israel. Because if you know anything about Herod, uh, he was jealous. He was paranoid. And when he heard there's another king in Israel, he goes, hold it a second, that's me. I want no competition. He didn't like competition and the history tells us he killed some of his wives and he killed some of his children. Yeah, that's the kind of guy he was. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is born into this situation, this political situation, where the government does whatever it wants. And killing kids, babies. That's what he was born into. But God has a plan that's way bigger than Herod's. And so when Herod uh, finds out that the Magi did not get back to him and say, hey, here's where you'll find this king of the Jews that we came, you came to worship, he is furious. And he demands that all the baby boys two years and younger be killed. Now, are, was Jesus two years old by that? I don't think so. I can't prove that. The chronolo- chronology is not all that clear. In fact, as, as I was doing this this year, I'm thinking, next year I'm going to try to put together a chronology and teach chronologically through the Christmas story. I don't know if I can do that or not. I don't know if I'm smart enough to do that. But I'm going to try. But here's what I know. is He is so paranoid, he wants to make sure that no boys are running around that even fit the description that would be of Jesus Christ. He wants to totally make sure he gets rid of them. So he casts a broad net to make sure he gets rid of them. Well, by that time, uh, Joseph had been warned by an angel that he was to go to Egypt. There's a passage in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that says this, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It is referring back to the Exodus, when God redeemed them from under slavery and bondage. But in this case, he is applying it to Jesus himself. And so, it says, out of Egypt. Hold it a second. He's born born in, well, he's from uh, Galilee. He's born in Bethlehem. He is in Egypt, and and ultimately is going to be called the Nazarene. And you go, wow, that's kind of confusing, man. Where's he from? He's from all over the place. Well, the answer is, that is actually true. Why? Because of the situation he was born into, it was not easy. 
It was a hard time. It was a hard time for all of Israel and particularly for the Son of God born uh, in Bethlehem. And so uh, they do move to Egypt. We don't know how long exactly they were there, but we know that Herod's son, who rules in his place, sorry about that, rules in his place, is worse than Herod. Can you imagine that? This is a guy that has no problem with infanticide and his son who rules after him. Herod died in uh, B.C. 4, 4 B.C. And uh, so we know Jesus was born before that, but his son reigned uh, in his place until 6 A.D. So Jesus had to have come back into Israel before 6 AD, and we know he had to come back before he was 12, because at 12 years old, his parents took him to the temple um, at, at 12 years old. So we know he was back by then, but we don't know the exacts of this whole thing. But, so all these babies are killed, and in fact is, it says that in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31, verse 15, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's about the Old Testament. That's what happened when Judah was taken into captivity into Babylon. They, they were ruthless guys. Uh, if you want to find out, read the book of Habakkuk and find out, Habakkuk, find out what kind of guys they were. They were a law unto themselves. They did whatever they wanted, and they didn't care who they killed. And so it was horrible. Rachel um, is the one that many Jewish people consider the mother of Israel because of her lineage and you know, her children and all that. And so he's taking something that's true of Israel as a whole and applying it here to the Jewish women who were lamenting that their children had been ripped from their arms and killed. And so he takes, and it's a double fulfillment here, it's kind of a parallel also. And uh, so this Herod is a horrible guy. Now they're in Egypt, and then God says, you know, the ones that were after your life, they're now dead. So we know that this has to be after 4 BC because that was Herod who was after trying to kill him. So it's after that. But Joseph finds out that Herod's son uh, is now the one that is reigning. His name is Archelaus, and he is the worst of all Herod's sons. He killed a bunch of them. There were two other ones that were still alive. But he's the worst one. And he is actually worse, as I already mentioned, worse than Herod. Here's how bad he was. He was a tyrant, he was a murderer, and he was instable. Many historians believe he was insane in the head because of intermarriage, uh, and that may have been true. We don't know that 100%. It's not biblical, but this guy was just insane. He had no stability whatsoever. Here's how bad it was. Herod was bad, but they tolerated him. He did all kinds of good things like build the temple and people kind of liked him a little for that. But not his son. His brothers and his clientele, the ones he ruled over, complained to the emperor how bad he was. And the emperor from Rome said, I'm removing him from office and sent him out in the back 40 in Gaul. 
just to get him out of leadership, get him away. That's how bad he was. Well, Joseph found that out. And again, our word afraid comes up. Notice how many times we've heard the word afraid in this series of sermons. Why? Times were bad. It was a horrible time to be born or to live or to minister or to, to be a believer. It was just horrible. And Joseph is afraid when he heard this was that his son was ruling and his reputation probably went ahead of him. And so an angel comes to him in a, in a God comes to him in a dream, I'm sorry, and said, listen, it's okay. Go back to Galilee to Nazareth. And then we come to the last one. You go, where do you get that despised social stigma while he was growing up? Well, it says at the end of Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, it says this, and he came in a city called, came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called the Nazarene. I challenge you. I don't care how much of a scholar you are. You will not find that quote in the Old Testament. Do I believe the Old Testament is wrong or do I believe this is wrong? The answer is no. Here's what you will find. You will find in the Old Testament that he was despised. You go, how in the world does that fit together? Here's what it is. If you were called a Nazarene, that was a stigma of low standing. Why? Because the Romans had a garrison of soldiers stationed in Nazareth. And if you lived in Nazareth, uh, it was you were really down, down, down. And it was like, you live among those Romans. You live among those Roman soldiers. These were not necessarily nice guys. In fact, is one of the rumors, not true, of course, but one of the rumors was that, well, when Mary got pregnant, it was one of the soldiers from the fort that was there. That was not true, of course. She was, virg she was a virgin. But the point is this. If you were called the Nazarene, it was basically, you're a despised person. You have a stigma on you. Some of you have a nickname that you got when you were a kid and you wish that stigma was gone long, 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 long time ago. Or they, somebody remembers something about you and you go, I wish they'd just forget that. That's like two lifetimes ago. The stigma was on Jesus. He's a Nazarene. Think about this. Did people flock to Jesus? In some cases they did. But by and large, by the time he came to his end of his ministry, you could count as faithful, about 120 people. I'm not saying there weren't other disciples. I'm just saying ones that would stay and say, hey, I'm, I'm following this guy. It wasn't until after the ascension and the day of Pentecost that all of a sudden his ministry exploded uh, on the day of Pentecost. He was a despised guy. That's what he grew up. Oh, that Nazarene. Remember, Christian was a despised term at first also. Oh, who do you think you are? You're one of them little Christs. You're one of those moons that you think you reflect the sun. That's what Jesus grew up under. I'm going to end with this because I'm out of time, but here's what it comes down to. Was anything ideal? No. Was, was the social situation just wonderful? No. We're were all the economics and, and all of the you know, wonderful things that should have happened to the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah? Were any of those things being out 
right out there in, in the open? The answer is no. It was all clouded over with gloom and despair and misery and destruction and death. Hardship. D did you realize in, in the last two sermons here how many times Joseph uh, and Mary and Jesus traveled because of, of various things? They have traveled the whole way to Egypt. The whole idea of going to Egypt is seen many places in the Bible as something very negative. But out of Egypt, they called my son. And so he was born in Bethlehem. He comes out of Egypt, and then he's called the Nazarene. Each one of those things points to, this was not easy. It was hard. I challenge you. Our time's dark. Yeah. I don't like a lot of what's going on. I don't think most of you do either. But here's what I know. If I stop serving the Lord and I am not who God wants me to be now, I'm missing the greatest opportunity that I'll ever have. So, when everybody, including your Christian friends, are down in the mouth and gloom, despair, and misery, you can't necessarily cheer them up, but I can tell you this. You can be an example. Why? How do I know you can be an example? Because I see what happened with Christ. In the midst of everything wrong, He still shines. He's still the center. I keep my focus on Him. Not on my circumstances. Not on the government. Not on the elections. Not on COVID. Not on riots. You know, they're all here. I don't live in la-la land someplace and say, hey, these aren't real. But that is not the controlling factor in my life. I'm challenging you. Do not allow that to be the controlling factor. We are Christians. We should be little Christ. We are the moon reflecting the light of the world. Who's Jesus? They need to see that, and particularly at this season of the year. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, this is not easy to hear sometimes. The fact is, the story of Jesus, we sanitize it so much, so many times, that uh, it's just like a cute little story. No, it's a hard one. It's not, an, it's not an easy one to see and to hear about because it was tough. But thank you, Lord, for coming. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for not allowing the circumstance and say, I'm going to do it some other time. Uh, these people aren't worth it. But he came as a Savior, as the Messiah, as God in the flesh. Thank you that those angels, our angel told those shepherds so many years ago, Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That has never changed. Circumstances haven't gotten a lot better in so many different ways. But I pray that we would be the ones that are salt and light in a dark, dreary, gloomy world. And that we could make a difference. Lord, thank you for using us. Thank you for reminding us. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God and be an encouragement.